0: What is up guys my name is kj and this is Wat theology now we got a big announcement that i gotta make so if you guys don't know i know i've been gone for two weeks i took a step back to kind of focus on schoolwork and like the lord and the family but now i'm back and so I actually i gotta introduce a special guest his name is uh, pastor jeremiah and he's actually now my co-host and so jeremiah Let's go <laughs> introduce yourself man well
1: hello again everybody my name is jeremiah nortier I serve at 125 Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And I've really enjoyed getting to know UKJ and just being able to contend for the faith together.
0: It's been fun, man. I know when our pastors first met each other, they said that we were both very similar. So it's kind of cool how me and I got mean, connected. And now we're co hosting technology uh, <laughs> together. other so be looking for some more material out there, guys. We're going to be talking about many topics. And um, that kind of leads us to our topic today. I, I, even, I forgot how we even got this topic. Going. I think I forgot what I asked you. I, I texted you something like that, and like, we think about free will. And so uh, <laughs> yeah, we so went. we
1: were we were planning about a number of upcoming topics, and, and um, you mentioned yeah, it would, it'd be good to talk about free will. I was like, oh, well, you absolutely have to have me on that because <laughs> I've spent years trying to have a better grasp of what the Bible teaches when it comes to man's choices.
0: I know a lot of times, too, when we think about, like, you know, the reformed community or like people who say they're Calvinists or just simply believe in God's sovereignty, like this is one of those issues kind of like people kind of divide over. And hopefully maybe we can kind of bridge that gap back together if we kind of just teach what the Bible says. I know like when people think about, you know, Calvinism, again, like a reformed theology, I think that, you know, if someone believes that God is sovereign, that means that man is not free. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign and that man is free. And so today, yeah. me and Jeremiah can kind of be dealing with that. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and get started, man. What's um? I guess you know we got two words put together. We got free and we got will. So the word the word is free will. So I guess how would you define free man?
1: So I re- the studying this topic, there's really two definitions that we have to be familiar with um, when we're talking about free will. You could be talking about, we're going to use some confusing terms, but it's so important to qualify what we mean by free will because whatever your theological framework is, you should be able to affirm, yes, we do have free will. But what do you mean when you say that? So one definition is referred to as libertarian free will. We'll unpack that in a moment. And I've also heard people call that contra-causal free will. We'll talk about what the the ability to choose to do otherwise means. But that's that's essentially number one, libertarian free will. And then you have this other really good uh, way of understanding free will, and it's a compatibilistic free will. And it's really contending for the truth that there is not a contradiction between God being absolutely sovereign over his creation, having perfect knowledge of the future and everything that that would entail, and saying that man legitimately is free to choose according to his heart's desire so libertarian free will compatibilistic or compatibilism
0: free will Hmm. now uh i guess before we can get there i guess you probably help us with this how can we define the will like i guess in that in itself so like i said we got them two words put together free and then you got Mm -hmm. will I looked it up, you know, I'm pretty sure like, you get to know me. I, I've said it many times in my podcast episodes, you know, my favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards, like Charles Spurgeon, Calvin, all these guys. But like Edwards is always one of my favorites. And so you guys know Edwards has an entire book about this, um, dealing with this called Freedom of the Will. You guys know Martin Luther has a book called, you know, the, the Bondage of the Will. But Edwards, his is the Freedom of the Will. And so he kind of, I guess, defines the, the free will as this. He says the mind choosing. And so what he's talking about is that the mind and the will, they kind of go together you can't, I guess they're like inseparable or they're kind of related in a sense. Mm-hmm. And so we don't make moral choices today without the mind approving the kind of directions of those choices. And so it's kind of, I guess, close to what the Bible says too about the conscious that we have in the mind to make moral decisions or choices. And so like, I, I guess we could think about it like this. So like when we when we um, become aware of certain options, like if, I guess the options presented before us and Like the mind is inclined to, I guess, make another, I guess, an option in front of us, but I guess more than another one, we choose kind of the strongest desire in that moment, in a sense. That's kind of what everybody's kind of defined. Mm-hmm. What would you say?
1: Yeah, so let's talk about those two words, free and then will. And I think I agreed wholeheartedly with everything of, of what you meant by will. Um, simply choosing the, the power of choice, and from a natural human perspective. You can have option A and option B, and you have the natural human capacities to choose A or B in that moment, right? Um, now we'll get into do we have the moral option to choose A or B? Are we able to choose A or B and give go- glory to God? Well, Jesus mentions, I, I believe it's in John 8, that we are slaves to sin. So there's a bondage to our will that we must affirm to some degree, and there's debate on to. what that looks like exactly, but the Bible does teach that our will is enslaved to sin, and you and I have talked about how Romans 6 talks about we're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness, so we do really need to understand that um, our will, whatever that may look like, our ability to choose is constrained by our human nature. Um, We can't choose to fly. That's just not in the cards, right? (laughs) So we have to understand we're a human being, And then we're also moral agents. What does that look like spiritually? And that's where the Bible is going to inform our presuppositions. Because before coming to Christ, it sure seemed like I could choose whatever I wanted to do. Um, And this is where when the scripture speaks, we lean not on our own understanding. We start with God's revelation, his truth. And then we begin to build our worldview, our understanding of truth from that. So uh, I want to start with will there. I think the the ability to think and make choices, everything you said that's perfect. Now we get to the word free. In what sense does free mean? Now this now to me, how you answer this will will pretty much choose whether you'll be in that libertarian camp or that compatibilistic camp. So I was looking at Proverbs 16.9. To me, this is this is almost explicitly what the compatibilistic free will stance is is trying to get at. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord, Yahweh, establishes his steps. So I would say compatibilistic free will says we are free to choose whatever our heart desires, but we're not free apart from God's sovereignty in his foreordination. Now compatible, uh, then you have, like we were saying, um, libertarian free will. This is a different idea and understanding. I think it breaks down. I don't think it can be fully consistent in light of all of what the scripture reveals in the whole counsel of God. But basically this gets at um, God does not have an eternal decree um, that God has not foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And I think they appeal to mystery that God is all-knowing, even before the foundation of the world, and I'm already thinking, well, from God's sovereign viewpoint, it's going to happen how the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, counseled, hopefully we get into a few verses of what that looks like, and and I don't understand, and I think I, I understand where they're coming from, but I think there's a, there's a breakdown. Does man have the ability to choose in whatever given moment that he wants to do a part- from God's omniscience, apart from God's all-encompassing sovereignty. And like like we're gonna get into, I think the Bible tells us that no, it is compatible. Both can be true and they're not contradictory to
0: one another. Hmm. So well said, man. I think about this too. I think RC Spro was I think he said some of the lines of like only God is the one ultimately free. And like kind of what you just said, and that mm-hmm. proverbs, like, you know, man plays a step, but God directs it. I think if you go a little bit farther down in Proverbs 16 talks about how like the we, the man kind of like throws a dice and I, the, the Lord is yes. what determines, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm putting a guy like in modern terms, but he determines what number kind of rolls out in a sense. And like, you see that like everything is is fixed in a sense, but like, does that truly eliminate, you know, the free will that we have in a sense? But the question is, you know, what is this free will? And so I guess what helps us as well is that, um I guess we can narrow it down like this. I'm gonna see if you agree with this, but you say that okay. free will is, <laughs> is, is like the, the ability to make decisions, right, or choices. So far, yes. Okay, so not kind. Of what you just said, like people assume because you know free will is the ability to make choices, then that means that we can determine, in a sense, our own lives. In a sense, mm-hmm. someone you guys knows the logical term called determinism. It basically means that we can determine our own lives because we have free will, right? God made us in His image with the ability to make decisions, right? I'm sure, like I don't, I don't know what your likes. My favorite ice cream is strawberry, and so I had a choice i <laughs> really like strawberry ice cream, right? Uh, my favorite basketball team is the Lakers. I had a choice to like the Lakers, right? <laughs> i think Jeremiah's Germanizers as well. So like, I had a choice to like those things, right? But, you know, kind of, how would you kind of define that, man? Like a determinism and kind of like how we have choices to kind of like, you know? Yeah. So um, in, in the world of philosophy,
1: if you're going to adopt a deterministic worldview, you really have two options one is referred to as a soft determinism and one is more of a hard determinism and i know critics of calvinism um will basically say there's no distinction without a difference there but i really think there is a soft determinism is is more of this compatibilistic notion that we're contending for that both god can be sovereign and man be responsible for his decisions hard determinism really removes man's desire and and inward volition to really want that ice cream because it tastes good. Um, A robot that's programmed to do something, that would be a hard determinism because that robot is doing what it's programmed to do, but it doesn't really have desire and doesn't have that compassion or, or choice to really want something. And we're saying, God is powerful enough, right? He's omnipotent to create a world, to have eternal decree with volitional creatures. So KJ really likes the ice cream when he chooses it, but that doesn't negate that it was ordained to come to pass
0: exactly how God planned it. Hmm. Kind of add to that. So essentially kind of what you're saying is that even though God is sovereign, he's not of course, we know he fixes all these things, but he's not fixing in the way that it makes us robots. And they're like, we're totally right. having, like, not a mind and a will in a sense. But mm-hmm. now this gets into the question. Well, we're going to say that, you know, God, you know, we, he allowed us to have free will. Then why can't we choose him? So I'll mm. You do <laughs> you deal with that. Yeah, what A lot of people are well, thinking right now. Yeah, because it's funny. Um, there's
1: so many thoughts that come first to mind. Because here in a second, I'll let you kind of guide this. But we will talk about Adam and Eve in the garden pre fall Think that matters, but we have a sin nature. We all died in Adam. We have a constituent, Mm -hmm. sinful nature that has marred our thinking. That's why no one seeks after God. God has to first begin that work in us, regenerate our heart, give us that conviction of our sin and a desire for our need of Jesus. So God, in, in essence, grants us repentance and faith. It's not that he brings us kicking and screaming against our will, but he changes our will. So that's why we need the Holy Spirit to move on man first in order for us to receive the
0: gospel. Uh, that's that's probably first what I would say. What do you think about that? I'm thinking too, to kind of like uh, Martin Luther's book, like I said, The Bondage of the Will. We're talking about something called the will, and like the will, oh. like I said, is related to the mind. So whatever we're thinking in the sense, in that moment, the strongest desire we're going to, you know, pick that. And so kind of what you just say, because of what happened in the garden, the will by nature is in bondage to sin and so now before we became christians the will was like slave to sin like you like jesus taught us in john 8 ephesians 2 says and you were dead in your sins mm-hmm. well, either paul was lying or you're telling the truth and so i'm assuming <laughs> telling the truth because he was under the inspiration of the holy spirit right and so we know mm-hmm. that like kind of like you, like you just said jesus tells us we're slaves of sin and so the will is in bondage and so all the decisions we're making even though they're free mm-hmm. We're freely choosing these things. The will is in bondage. And so we're choosing freely to sin. And mm-hmm. so like when you get to heaven, God's not going to say, you know, I forced you to sin. So I'm still going to throw you to hell. He's going to say, no, you freely chose to do those mm-hmm. things. And so that's kind of what a lot of people kind of get confused, I guess, like in this Calvinistic, um, let me like I said, Because people like, you know, Calvinism, reform theology, hold to, you know, the sovereignty of God. They say, well, it doesn't make sense how you can have both, you know, free will and also Calvinism and put them together. It's one or the other, but that's not what the Bible teaches us. But before we even get there, let's kind of deal with kind of we just talked about. You know, was, was Adam and Eve free in the garden? You no know, pre-fall. <laughs> so so I, <laughs> I,
1: I, was gonna say I would affirm Adam and Eve pre-fall, and even all of mankind after the fall, we have free will, but those free wills do look a little different. <laughs> they had the the freedom to choose without the marred perception of sin. And really, that's all I say, um, because this is this is what we, me and you talked about the other day. So when Adam and Eve look at, looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they had the, the free will choice to engage with it and be disobedient and make a simple choice, or they had the ability to choose not to be obedient to God. Now, that doesn't negate God having a purpose of having the tree there, uh, permitting the devil to tempt them. And we realize that God is accomplishing plan A. Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So even their um, free will that wasn't marred by sin doesn't negate the sovereignty of God. And the only difference I want to make with Adam and Eve pre-fall and then mankind after the fall is then you take the unregenerate man after the fall and he has the ability, let's think of a moral um, choice. You can walk someone across the street that from a human perspective looks good, or you can choose to hatefully turn your back and you know um, you know not help that person that would be bad. Well, for the unregenerate man, either option, A or B, is still sinful before God. Hmm. That's probably the major distinction with Adam and Eve pre-fall, but both pre-fall, post-fall doesn't negate God's all-encompassing sovereignty.
0: I add to that, too, kind of what you just said, because it reminds me of a theological term that we know is civic virtue. RC's pro talks about this in the systematic theology class. So kind of what you said, civic virtue is a sense. It's like, let's say, for example, um, the speed you know, the Bible tells us to obey the laws of the land. And so at times, you'll see people, people really obeying that <laughs> on the street that mm-hmm. you're driving the interstate. And so the speed limit makes say like 75 and people going 75. Right. But as an unbeliever, you know, if the Bible tells us that only, you know, his children can obey him. Why does it seem as though people, you know, who are lost, can obey God's word? Well, in that moment, they're selfishly obeying that for a a private reasons, not for because God says to in His word, but in that moment, it may be rooted for something selfish. I may be obeying this law because I don't want a ticket and I'm about to spend money, but it's not because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to obey God because what says in His word. And so, it's called civic virtue, kind of what you just said. Now, we think about this. Kind of what I say why the, the will is unbondished to sin is because, like you just said, Adam and Eve, their minds wasn't, you know, unbondished to sin pre-fall. But us, the man today, we are unbondished to sin. they had like the choices we make are rooted in sin. And so it's kind of unique right there, man. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to give the audience a verse when I said
1: that it doesn't matter what the unregenerate man chooses to do, A or B, it's still sinful before God. One verse that I feel like is explicitly clear is Romans 14, verse 23. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. (laughs) So you can do all these humanly good acts, all sinful before God, because it must be rooted in faith to glorify God in truth, right? The triune God and and the, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh. So if you're not doing something to glorify the true God, well, then it's there's sinful motives there. You have motives to really push yourself up, boast in what you can do and show off before other people. But the fact that we even make moral decisions is because we bear the image of God. We are the Imago Dei, right? But we are a marred image of God,
0: right? Definitely unique, man. And so, like e- even with that, man, like if an unbeliever were to go to you know a biblically sound church and they're you know worshiping, quote unquote, and you know in the Lord's day or you know at church, however you want to say it, that even that worship is sinful because, like you said, it's not rooted yeah. in faith. That worship right. is rooted probably an idolatry, not even worshiping probably the, the triune God. It's probably a god that they have created. Now here's a question for you, Jeremiah. I guess for myself, can someone who holds to the doctrine of God's sovereignty, as we've been discussing? and still holds a free will. We kind of already been hinting at it, but how how would you you deal with this? Well, it depends how you
1: define God's sovereignty, and it depends what you mean by free will. I feel like, so I had these passages flipped to, if we define God's sovereignty, I would contend for being the biblical understanding that God rules and reigns over every aspect of his creation that he, he is in the heavens, he, he's free to do whatever he wills on heavens above or on the earth below, that's all-encompassing, and if we double down and say that God is omniscient, he is all-knowing before the foundation of the world, that's the sovereignty I want to contend for. Hopefully, your audience, when they hear me just kind of rattle off those truths, hopefully you hear the Bible passages that rightly reflect those things. And so Ephesians chapter 1, this is to me one of those inescapable places that I would go to to contend for the sovereignty of God. And before I get into it, uh, it's verse 11. But if you have that view of of God's sovereignty, this all-encompassing, that God has meaning and purpose in every aspect of life, um, then the only free will that is, quote-unquote, compatible with that is this compatible Understanding that, okay, I'm free to choose what I want to do, but I'm not free apart from that understanding of God's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So if you have that Calvinistic sovereignty, um, Augustine understanding, right? We've talked about church history in past episodes. Um, if we had this Augustinian understanding of God's sovereignty, then the only possible free will would be compatibilism. So I I just want to submit that to you. But if if you and what I see in a lot of Baptist culture is the opposite. They want to start with this contracausal free will, this libertarian freedom um, that says that I'm free to do otherwise, and God is is, basically is not sovereign in that moment. And I've heard of a man named Layton Flowers, which. I want to say I think he is a brother in Christ and I actually enjoy listening to his material because it sharpens me and and he this is a man trying to rightly handle the scripture so I actually appreciate his ministry and so I just want people to hear that but what I what I fail to understand is how if God knows everything and then um, chose a particular world, and that's the one that's going to come to pass, then I can't understand how God is not sovereign. Let no, no, me, me back up. Um, what I see that as in that moment of somebody choosing to receive Jesus, well, that would entail that God is not sovereign in that moment. Leighton Flower says, well, a king can be sovereign over his land, but he doesn't have exhaustive knowledge and doesn't, you know, decree them to do X, Y, and Z. I'm saying, yes. Because that is not a one-to-one comparison of what a sovereign earthly king looks like to the sovereign king of kings over the universe. I'm gonna swing this back over to you, but then we get into this understanding. We got to understand the distinction between the creator
0: and the creation. Hmm. Now you asked me a good question when we talked about this earlier. kind of I think it kind of puts it in perspective. So you kind to gotta refresh my memory. But it's something of okay. the lines of like I think you said where Adam and the, how did you kind of how did you word it? Do you remember? I think mm-hmm. it's like that
1: where Adam and Eve free something like that. <laughs> Adam and Eve possessed free will that was compatible with God's sovereignty, but their free will was not marred by a sin nature. They could have, from a human perspective, chose a not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that would have been glorifying to God, or they could have chose b, and which they did. Right, sinful I'm saying. Fallen man, rege- the unregenerate man does not have that option. They can choose A or B, and either one of them is sinful before God.
0: Yeah. So I think you I think that's what it was the question you asked. I think you asked, you know, Adam and Eve free in the garden. I think my response was like, well, it depends on what, what we're talking about. So, like, for example, yeah. from human perspective, I would say yes, they had free will, like how would you just define? But then mm-hmm. I would say from God's perspective, he was sovereign even over the, the decision they right. So it was fixed to happen mm-hmm. in a certain way the world, mm-hmm. I guess the reality that it happened, that it did in fact happen, it was fixed because God ordained this stuff to happen. Yep. Like even with the cross, for example, that wasn't plan B, that was plan A. God always had mm-hmm. this plan happen. Like you said, allowing the devil to come in the garden, to tempt Eve, and allow all these things to happen. God had a plan. But now, mm-hmm. as we're dealing with this, um, it wasn't as though, uh, I think First John chapter 2 says that um God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Isaiah 45 verse 6, I believe it says that you know, I'm the Lord who created, you know, light and darkness. I for calamity and well-being. I do. I'm the Lord. Who does all these things? Ephesians one verse four, like you said, that, you know, they talk about the Lord mm-hmm. predestining things. Proverbs sixteen, all these things we see God as sovereign, but is, is still in the realm of like a free will. I think the best example we have is Pharaoh, for example. The Bible mm-hmm. talks about how God hardened his heart, but does that mean that God forced him to do those things? Does that mean that God forced Adam and Eve to sin? In The garden, no, because we know that again, we have the. Of course, it's, it's, it's you already made the distinction between you no know, unbelievers and Adam and Eve, but we, we see this distinction that God is sovereign in the choices that we make, but it doesn't eliminate the choices that we do make. And mm-hmm. so if, I'm, if I'm making sense out there for everybody <laughs> listening, um, and I, and I agree with that, like, God is not the
1: author of sin, He does not force good people to do bad things, and that's really. The fundamental thing we have to understand the depravity of man is that we do not seek God. We run the opposite direction. But let me begin to articulate this, KJ, because this actually helped me leaps and bounds and is understanding the creator creation distinction. So what I'm getting at is God's ability to make choices is not one to one the same how created man makes decisions. God is eternal, absolute, transcendent. So that's why he is all-knowing. That's why he's omniscient. He knows things absolutely in that light, like you said. So man, we may have some knowledge of things. We make choices, but that is a reflection of God. So think about this. And um, Charles Spurgeon had an analogy that I didn't like that much. (laughs) Um, I love Spurgeon, right? But I thought the analogy is one of a synergistic understanding of man and God and not a monergistic one. And so he had this idea that if you look at train tracks, you have one side of the train track going straight, and the other one's parallel beside it, and then they somehow converge and touch in eternity. Two things, and I I feel like I'm in good company with R.C. Sproul also did not like this analogy. He said, well, if they're parallel, then they never touch, not even in eternity. (laughs) Now, I thought that's a good point, because we don't want to parallel the eternal absolute will and choice of God with, with created man. That's not being intellectually honest or representative of the scripture however if god's choice is both sides of the train track and then man's choice is somewhere in the middle right contingent on god remember in act 17 in god we live and move and have our being we are contingent created finite god is the opposite of that in a sense right he's absolute eternal and so if we just let god be god and his decisions belong to him alone well, then it's all going to compatibilistically come together. So God is the one with libertarian free will to create a world, to have a plan of redemption to the father, to choose a bride for the son. This is electing a people that do not deserve salvation. That means that the son can be the perfect savior to all that the father has given him. And then the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit is able to regenerate that bride And to seal them to the day of redemption. This is a Trinitarian gospel of grace. So if if we say God is free to do that, well, then that's basically made the argument for us because that would entail all of man's free desires to choose, right, within that unfolding plan. So there's a compatibilism there. And you just you got to let man's will be limited and finite and creaturely, and you gotta let God's will be empty infinite absolute and sovereign
0: i think we talked about this on monday as well that um for example like you know our wills now as believers you know we're bound you know to obey the yeah. lord but like god is bound by his own nature but that's a good thing because there is nothing above god he is the standard and it's like you said right. he has he is the one ultimately who has that the free will that people mm-hmm. kind of talk about as far as like determinism in a sense god can determine whatever he pleases but it's sure. in within his own nature which is a good thing like i said if we know that god mm-hmm. is holy Now, I guess, what's the purpose of all this? Like, if all this is, you know, true and biblically, you know, accurate, you know, why why study this? You know, is it really important Um, to be talking about free will?
1: Well, uh, this is personally When I started to grapple with the doctrines of grace and then basically seeing how these five points of Calvinism is grounded in the biblical truth that God is sovereign the way that we've been talking about, it literally changed everything for me. Because I started seeing life as um, my life in particular is won by gr- the grace of God. Everything that now I'm doing, God is working in me both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so it's for my sanctification. All things are working together for the good of those that love him and who are called according to his purpose. It changed the way that I read the Bible because I saw God's sovereignty, his plan of redemption unfolding on every page and every verse. And then I was, I understood that even when I sin, I'm not thwarting God's sovereign plan, but he had those purposes uh, for my sanctification. And I find a lot of joy in evangelizing, knowing that I have a hundred percent success rate that I'm sowing seeds and God is giving the increase. And so it it just, it changed everything. It started changing how I interacted with people because I can't change a person's mind if they really want to hold to this libertarian freedom that to me, it seems like a traditional understanding. Well, second Timothy uh, chapter two, I believe tells us that as the Lord's servant, we're called to be loving, patient, willing to teach from God's truth, but it's God that grants repentance. And I believe that's for a person to be saved and even Talking about, you know, God's truth and sanctification, God has to be one to to grant them repentance. So I'm not gonna get bent out of shape. I'm just gonna lovingly show people the word of God and then just trust in his sovereignty.
0: Right on the money, man. I got a um, verse I'm gonna kind of mention after I say this, but like it's encouraging kind of what you just say is because I know that I can trust that that my God is a God of providence. He's a God who is sovereign. And that's the kind of God that I want to serve because it, it encourages me. Like you said in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my suffering. In the midst of my depression, in the midst of well, people, maybe people might have mental problems, whatever it may be, God is with His people, and He said, like He says, He'll never leave us or forsake us. Well, either He was lying or He was telling the truth, but because I know that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign and all these things, I can trust in the Lord. He says, "Come to us, all your worry, and He gives us rest." And so I know I can really, truly rest in what His His words, because I know He's sovereign. Uh, Philippians one, uh, no, Philippians two, verse fourteen. I gotta find I just had it. Oh, here you know, Philippians 2, chapter 12, <laughs> verse 12. Uh, Paul says this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so essentially, when you kind of been talking about Paul hits right on the nail, Paul tells us to work. Now hold on, let me put some clarifies on this. He's not talking about a works-based salvation that we can we can do all this good to get to heaven. But what he's saying is that now that we are saved and essentially what we're we doing with this salvation, now that God's granted us this faith, he producing us this faith that we now have. And we should revere God as well, that, you know, we know that God is holy. And so we should kind of respond to this holiness as believers. Like it's impossible to be a believer in um, somebody who professes, you know, the gospel and your life is not, you know, change. You already said that earlier, but not only this, God works in us the will for his good pleasure as well. So you kind of see both these things intersecting and connecting. Mm-hmm. I, I used to say not parallel, but they're intersecting the whole time. And so it's kind of very encouraging for myself. Would you think, though, man?
1: That's, that's great. If I could do a shameless plug, um, a few months ago, I preached on those verses Uh-oh. and you talk about, cause you gotta think into verse 14 and 15, we are not to grumble or complain about anything. And I think that only makes sense if God is sovereign and everything has a purpose in our life. So I, I love, cause that brings up the dynamic. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling from our viewpoint. We make choices right according to our desire and we should be warring against the lust of the flesh, warring against Satan and choosing holiness. So that's that, um, our viewpoint, right? And then it's God who's both willing and working in us for his good pleasure. So that's where it's like that our responsibility doesn't negate that God has this massive sovereign plan. And this is a verse that really helped me because I I started to understand these concepts. And I was like, I want to make sure I'm being as biblical as possible. And uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul that really said, if you want to see the eternal decree, go to Ephesians 1.11 and read this verse in its entirety, in in its context, where Paul says, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I like how predestined is there. That's mentioned six times in the new Testament, but Paul's talking about predestination in a much broader framework. He says, according to the purpose of God, who works all things after or according to the counsel of his will. So what type of council are we talking about? We're talking about a Trinitarian council before the foundation of the world. That's what the context says in verses three and four in Ephesians 1. You got God, the Father, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit's mentioned in uh, verse 13. But the context is this council of God, Trinitarian council before the foundation of the world. And then they have a will. They make a choice. They have, you know, this infinite number of worlds and i'm talking about time and space and all of history that's going to come about and they make a choice on one in particular so from god's perspective everything has meaning purpose and it's a guarantee to happen and they are working out right the the verse says according to the purpose of him who works all things right after this council after this will that they made a decision So if that's the framework, well, then, of course, predestination is super easy to understand. Now, we're talking about a soft determinism because we do make genuine choices, but you got to you got to really let the Bible influence how we think and and do theology and and have knowledge and truth. And uh, depending on how much more time we have, there's another passage in the Bible that kind of makes me think that I have the right interpretation of the apostle paul here in ephesians but i want to throw it back over to you if you want to say anything
0: yeah um kind of like i'm always encouraged like when we think about free will it always leads to the discussion of god's sovereignty and like one of the i guess outside of what i just read in philippians 2 i'm reminded of genesis 50 you guys remember the story mm. of joseph being slowed into you know bondage and slavery of course that, that that story points to christ as being a better joseph but anyway before we get to that just remember that story at the end of that story you know all those things that happened that were evil to Joseph that his brothers did to him. When Joseph returns to his brothers and he sees him again, he says, what? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So either he would lie or he would tell the truth, but I want to believe that all scripture, like Paul says, is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, right? And so if all scripture is god breathing, and inspired by God's word, then God put that there for us as a church to believe and hold fast with today. So again, all the evil that happens in the world, all the things that happen to you personally, for those of you in Christ, all these things, like Jeremiah said, God is working together in a plan. So even even the the evil in the world, God has a plan for all this. It's it's not by coincidence. There's no such thing as coincidence in Christianity. God has fixed this world that we live in, this reality we live in, to happen in a certain way. I believe R.C. always quote this because it's pretty good. R.C. Sproul says, evil is not good and good is not evil, but it is good that evil exists. Otherwise, it would not be. Now, when you think about that, it sounds like some foolishness. But when you think about the Bible and what the Bible says about all these things, it aligns perfectly with what me and Jeremiah have been talking about today. God is sovereign over every single thing. But again, Isaiah 45, I create light and darkness. I am the Lord of these things. I create calamity and well-being. What do you think, though, man?
1: Well, you, you alluded to Isaiah 45, and I'm glad that you did that because Isaiah 45 sits in a broader context of Isaiah 40 through 48. There's this uh, comparing and contrasting of false gods made with human hands, idols right according to human imagination, being compared with the sovereign God of, of truth and of the scripture we're talking about. And so one chapter later in Isaiah 46, to me, this helps me know that I have the right interpretation of Paul in Ephesians 1:11. When Paul or when the prophet Isaiah says in 46, starting in verse 8, And a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Hmm. Now, what is amazing is God is telling us that he is commanding all of time, the end from the beginning, whatever comes to pass is by the sovereign hand of God. And like you've been saying, that means it has purpose. It has meaning. And when you go back to Isaiah chapter 41, you see the futility of idols. So this is, like I said, you got this comparing contrasting model going on where he says, I'll just read verse 22. Let them bring their false idols and tell us what is to happen. You tell us of the former things, what they are, that they may consider them, that we know their outcome or to declare to us the things to come. So here's the test to know if your alleged gods um, are are the true thing. Tell us why things happened in the past. Tell us the reason why. Or predict to us the things that are going to come in the future. Give us prophecy. They can't do it. All those things fall short of the the triune sovereign God that has purpose and meaning because it's his created world and his plan of redemption is unfolding. And so it's, I have that underline in my Bible that there's one God, there's none like him, and he is the one declaring the end from the beginning. And that's why he's going to counsel, uh, accomplish everything that he's counseled and declared to be. So those are those, those passages that are daggers to me. Uh, I can't understand this libertarian free will that man can make a choice that God did not foresee before the foundation of the world. And someone says, oh, well, he acknowledged that before the foundation of the world, then I'm saying, okay, well, then there went your libertarian freedom. Right? You have the ability to choose according to your heart's desire, but not apart from God's
0: sovereignty. Right on the money, man. Now just one last, you know, practical implication for like the church, the visible church, those who you are believing in Christ. Um, I tend to like I like to think of it like this, you know, Whatever is a reality around us, that's exactly the world that God created for a specific purpose in his sovereignty and his providence. So whether you're at that job that you think is bad, the church mm-hmm. that you're at, the family that you're in, the school that you're at, you know, whatever these things that's considered hard to you, the reality around you, that's exactly what God ordained to happen. So you can trust him in his will. And I I like that better, in fact, that I'm not in charge of all these things because I, you know, we're always faulty, right? But God, you can trust him, right? He's perfect and wise in all his ways, like Jeremiah's been saying. So whatever the reality is around us, whether it be good, quote unquote, or bad, we can trust that the Lord and will provide for his people. Now, on the other side, if I can get this a little bit to the gospel, I'm sure Jeremiah can help me a little bit. For us as children in Christ, this is very encouraging. What about for those who are lost? This is probably not as encouraging them because their situation might not be as good, quote unquote, for believers. Now, I'm not saying that once you get saved, all your problems go away. Like I said already, that Christ is now with us in the midst of our problems. That's what makes us have this joy, because no matter what we go through, we can trust that God is sovereign with his people. Now, in the psalmist, uh, David says this. Psalms 32. You can have this with this, Jeremiah. He says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered, blessed is a man who the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, play attention to this right here. For when I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And so notice how what David is saying. Now, he's a believer, of course, but like what he's saying is that when he didn't, you know, refuse to acknowledge his sin to God and confess it, God, in a sense, was like, he was kind of pruning David in a sense to kind of grow him more like himself. But I kind of touched to you, too, because how does it relate to an unbeliever, the sovereignty of God and the circumstances around them?
1: I think if an unbeliever hears the sovereignty of God that we just have been talking about, I think they should be scared (laughs) out of their mind because that sovereign God, you cannot thwart him. Right. Psalm 2 tells us he who sits in the the heavens laughs right off all these kings trying to plot against the sovereign God. That's foolish. But it's laughable because it's it's impossible. So that's why the 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 book of Hebrews tells us that it's a fearful thing unto the hand. God, that's where an unbeliever the only way for them to have a chance to understand these things is to hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit regenerate their heart and then come to Christ, and the Spirit illuminate their heart and mind to be able to receive these truths. So when it comes to unbelievers, man, we got to hit that gospel hard and i think another you know point that you brought up far as you know how is this encouraging to believers well jesus in his sermon on the mount said seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness Mm -hmm. and all these things will be added to you god will take care of you if he can take care of the birds of the air and the grass of the field how much more can he take care of his own children Mm -hmm. so you know what seek first the kingdom um get plugged into your local church um, submit yourself under the leadership of your elders and say, How can I serve? This is my skill set that God has gifted me with. And I just want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Please help me do that. And God's gonna take care of the rest.
0: So to me, I find a lot of encouragement in that as well. I wish we had more time. We definitely could have talked about like, you know, God's permissive will and like his decrees, how they time to get there. Cause I guess one last thing before we get out of here. Like, um, some people they always ask me a lot time, you know, KJ, I'm having a hard time. Making this decision, I don't know. Like if I make this decision, you know, is that God decision or was that my decision? You know, stuff like that. Of course, we know that, like for example, what God's decrees are in His word. You should not lie. You should not commit it. Those, those things we know. For example, like those are His like exact words. So, in His permissive will, for example, He may allow somebody to do those things, but it kind of contradicts His word. But it's still a purpose for that. But well, how does it relate to? I guess like if somebody were to come up to us and be like, Hey, you know, KJ, you know, what is God's plan for us in a sense? I'm not, I'm not talking about unbelievers and I'm not talking about believers. And I don't know what to do. I'm having a hard decision to make here. Well, kind of what I said earlier, kind of like the reality around us, it's been fixed to happen a certain way. So whether or not you feel like you made a bad decision or not, that's a decision that God ordained to happen from eternity past. So you can rest in that. Now, if you make a simple decision, that's not okay. Like I said, has nothing to do with God and KJ. Now, of course, God allowed it to happen. But again, it's sinful. We chose to do that the sin. But what do you think, uh um, Jeremiah?
1: Yeah, so that's a very natural question for someone to ask. What is God's will for my life? I just I'm at a standstill. I don't know what to do. Well, God's will for us is to be saved. Amen. And then I think it's first Thessalonians 4, 3 that says, and the will of God is your sanctification. So God's will, your salvation, God's will, your sanctification. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? So let's say within that framework uh Which job should I do? Who should I marry? All these things. Well, um, Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, some people immediately jump to the second part and say, oh, I want this, that and the other thing. And it's really vain. It's, It's to gratify the flesh. And that's not what that verse is talking about. You know, pray for a really fancy car. It's saying delight yourself in the Lord. Salvation sanctification, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Um, and, and so when you're doing that, then you can give God glory in whichever direction you want to go. And, uh, and you can always test to make sure you can give God glory in that. If option A does not give God glory, but option B does, well, that's a simple one, right? But let's say uh, there's two options that either way you could glorify God in that manner Pray about it. Seek some wise counsel. Figure out which one you maybe, you know, like more and then do that one. God will give you desires and he will move you to where he wants you by giving you godly desires to give him glory.
0: Hmm. And this all ties in again for the believers. All this should be encouraging for the believers, as Jeremiah said, but for unbelievers, you should be scared. I think it's in the Gospels. I don't want to say Luke um god jesus tells the people he says no don't fear the person who can kill the body but fear the person who can kill both the body and destroy the soul or throw that soul into hell and so for the unbeliever this is scary because god is omniscient the bible says that god is going to judge those secret sins what he's talking about Mm -hmm. those things that you think no one knows god sees all those things and the you know standard to get to heaven is not you know me or jeremiah or you know hitler or the devil or another sinner their standard is someone who is perfect the standard of Jesus Christ himself, who was perfect, who never sinned, he was sinless, right? But he chose to die on the cross for sinners so that can be made right with him. The Bible talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, uh, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him the righteousness of God may be shown. I'm paraphrasing this, but essentially what we're getting at is that Jesus Christ took upon flesh to die for sinners. And so those sinners who trust in Christ and the work and person of Jesus Christ will be saved. And so again, True rest is found in him. Apart from Christ, you never find rest because you're always trying to satisfy that, that rest and like false gods. But kind of what Jeremiah said, those false gods can't please us, but there's drugs, sex, money, TV, whatever it is, even people, they'll let you down. But God, he's the one that we can truly rest in. So any last words, Jeremiah, man, before we get out of here?
1: See, first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things
0: will be taken care of. And I like to yeah. add, man, and if you're a Christian, you need to be pre meal <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was good. I miss you, man.